last week, um, at the as part of my introduction to what we're going to be doing here in this course, I did a real quick run through with you, a synopsis of what your homework was going to be. Correct? Um, now, did this one go out? I can't remember. I didn't send this out, did I? This synopsis. Okay. Um, as I was sitting with um, Andre this week and we were talking about some of the various things that I do, is she, she was asking for a little bit of additional training for um, just how to lead her group. I had mentioned to her that this was something that I liked to do as a teacher before I do my lessons, particularly in the beginning part when we're first getting started, just to give people uh, some guidelines as to what each day's homework is supposed to ac accomplish as far as the inductive Bible study process is concerned, right? So what I do is I like to go through day by day, day one, read all the instruction, and then determine based on what the inductive Bible study process is determined, what was that question number one in day one about? What was it actually asking us to do? Because sometimes the way Kay phrases the questions in there, unless you're very familiar with the inductive process, you're not going to know really what she's asking inductively, what the, the step is that she's asking you to do. So this is, again, something I'm just going to remind all of you of. For those of you who really feel that you're grooming yourself eventually to step out and begin to teach, or to lead in some way. You know, another person I ran into on Sunday was Donna, and she is d using this method in her ministry work at the Lockhart Prison for Women. And so she goes, she simplified it, she uses it in a way that works and is conducive for that environment, but she uses these uh, inductive Bible study skills to help train and teach the women that she's ministering to. So there's a lot of different ways that this this kind of thing can be used. It doesn't have to be that you would become a precept teacher, per se, but that it can be used if you're homeschooling your children. It can be used if you're discipling one-on-one -on -one or one or two young women in your life or, or even older women who also sometimes need it, right? Um, I mean, there's, there are a lot of things that can be done. Also, what I want you to know is that if you will take the time occasionally, you don't have to do this every week, but if you will take the time occasionally to try to do this, I think it will help you to really learn the inductive method, understand the reasonings behind why are you asked to mark keywords and make those lists and do these cross-references. And so when you did that, what was that process all about and, how, and what did it conclude for you? What, what conclusions did it help take you to for understanding maybe doctrines or at least understanding the author's purpose in it, right? So that this is just a challenge. I'm starting my morning off to give you this idea that you might want to try it for yourself. Um, the first few times you do it, it may be a real rough draft, but I think you'll get better at it the more you try it. And what is valuable is that eventually what it really does is it, it, it really helps you understand what you're doing rather than you just sitting down doing day one, fill in the blank, day two, fill in the blank. We don't want to fill in the blank kind of thing. I want you to reason it through and understand what you're doing, okay? All right, so that's my little challenge to you this morning. And by the way, um, Lois, if you will remind me, I will send this to you along with chart from this week's work, and then I'll send this with it, 
And this will help you actually when you even look at your chart to say, oh, yeah, that is what we did. On day one, we did our basic observations in chapter one, and we, we marked keywords, and we started making lists on people, and we titled our chapter, right? We began that at a glance chart. Um, so you'll be able to see that that is, in fact, what you did. All right. All right, so today we're rolling up our sleeves. We're digging into a brand-new, fresh study, and we are ready to begin to look at the book of Acts, and we want to study it um, first by setting its context. Now, I'm going to go back and read to you what I read last week one more time, just the opening uh, part of this. This is in your inductive how-to study book. The very last uh, section of it called Appendix A, and the title of it is Summary of the Inductive Process. I'm only going to read you the first line, though, to remind you what we're doing right now. We, are, we know that when you start any inductive Bible study class or, or a new uh, curriculum, the first thing you generally do is an overview of your book, right? We now know that overviews are, are reserved for things like letters. Here is what she says about it. Step one in it concerning the overview. Remember, the overview is usually reserved for letters. For history and prophecy, chapter-by-chapter chapter study works best. Okay. Uh, also in letters, she goes on to talk about more about the letters. But what I wanted you to hear was that in history, you do what? Chapter by chapter. Thank you. Very good. So that is why right away, week one, we started with chapter one. It makes it a little more challenging, however, to understand uh, right away what is the author's purpose, right? Because you're still kind of in the dark on that, are you not? Do you remember when we did the book of Matthew together? And I kept going, I don't know why we didn't do an overview. I, I mean, I was really frustrated. But as we moved all along in the book of Matthew, pretty soon those um, uh, segment divisions began to develop. And as we realized there were segments and it started making a flow of thought that made sense, rather than it just being a whole bunch of accounts, right? He did this, he did that, he was here, he was there, these people were with him, then they went there, right? Instead of all event, 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 by really studying it thoroughly and drawing it to these conclusions by titling chapters, by finding paragraph flows of thought that the author is covering through there, what was actually shown to them there in that event, what was the, now how does that event that was demonstrated to us, how did that relate back to the author's purpose, right? Do you, are you following? Okay. And so by doing it that way, then eventually what you were able to say is, oh, look at here, this segment is all about him doing this or showing us this, and that's how he is accomplishing his goal. Then you moved into the next segment, same thing. After we did two or three uh, chapters, we started to see, oh, these are all about this subject, and that's how he's also accomplishing his goal. He's doing it by showing this. So I'm reminding you of that from the book of Matthew because I believe possibly in Acts we may see something similar. Although I've never done the book of Acts, and as you know, Acts is a brand new curriculum for precept ministry, so it's never been out before. But you and I may need to be paying attention to that, that we may start to see that, that um, segment divisions will, st will start to show up, or, um, yeah, segment divisions. So we might get into chapter, you know, one, two, three, and then we'll go, oh, that's all about this. Then we're going to hit chapter four maybe and switch to a new subject, but that subject will still relate back to the author's purpose. 
we may not de fully develop exactly what the author's purpose is, however, until we're into the book of ways. Because we aren't doing that overview. It's hard to identify this. So you just can't assume you know. And he here's the other danger for all of us. We all have been dropping in and out of Acts for pretty much all of our Christian faith walk. I mean, everybody's familiar. It's New Testament. Of course, everybody knows about it, right? They love the New Testament. But don't let what people's preconceived thoughts uh, have told you the book of Acts is about g totally, you know, make you fall into that way. Because what can happen is it's like it is that preconceived uh, conclusion. If you have a, have a conclusion that you've already determined, then you start to read through that filter and everything that you look at, you're going to think it has to relate back to that thing that you think is the author's purpose. I am just going to challenge you to say, wait for this to develop for itself. We may at first sort of blindly be going through um, looking at each chapter just basically a standalone thing. I'm just going to take it for what it is in chapter 1. And then I'm going to get to chapter 2 and I'm just going to take it for what it is. But by the time we hit 3 or 4 or 5, we might start to see all of a sudden the light bulbs are going to start to come on and we're going to start having a revelation about what's going on really in this book and how it all connects. That's kind of exciting to wait for the Lord to show you that. Do the diligent work. Keep your mind open. Don't draw total conclusions yet, okay? Okay, so in order to do anything as objectively as possible, we start by looking at the obvious, correct? Um, what is going to be obvious in any literary piece of work? What are the obvious things that you and I are going to start to look for? There you go. People, places, things, events, right? Um, and when you're looking at anything that's historical, you also need to be sure to mark those references of time, correct? Also, what else? Geographical locations. Because you guys are getting good at this. I almost don't even have to do this anymore. So you want people, places, events, uh, geographical locations, and references to time. Why? Because all those pertain to building the understanding of any kind of a historical record. How does it flow? What is going to be your timeline in it? Who are your major people? Who does what to whom? And how does it all resolve itself? And in the end of it, what you want to know about all those people is how does that relate to what, you know, that information about those people? How does that tell me or show me something that the author was trying to accomplish? Right? All right. Okay, so here we are, off and running. We're going to look at, of course, the author. Did my board behind me give me away? <laughs> okay, let's start with the author and see what we can learn about him. Now, uh, was there any place in uh, Acts chapter 1 where we get the name of our author? No. Okay. So the first thing that we see then uh, is that we have to glean insights about the author without actually identifying the author, right? Because there's nowhere in there he identifies himself and says, like Paul does, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, you know, he loves to give a full explanation as to who he is and he credentials himself. But this author did not do that. So what we have to do is, is kind of uh, come to observations that are, oops, that's dry. I did, a, I did it again, and I, bought, I pulled out brand new ones. Where's my bag at? Thank you. Um, 
Let me get my new my other my other old markers out. Maybe they'll work better. <laughs> so sorry, you guys. I thought I was all together here. Let's see if this will work. What's wrong with the board? <laughs> Nothing's working on it. Aha, there's one. Found one. Okay. The author. What do we learn about the author from chapter one of Acts? There you go. That's exactly what, what we want to see. We know that all we can tell you about this author is that he addresses Theophilus. Very good. Hold on. One thing at a time. It, I, that, that name is a little tough to get. Okay, chapter 1, verse 1. He addresses a man named Theophilus. And then, as Diane has already said, he also then secondarily tells us that what? Okay, he refers to a first account. Uh, that he had written. And now, does he go on then to give us any uh, I, any clues as to what that first account was about? He sure does. Okay, so I, I'm not going to write these down because it's going to take too much time. You tell me, though, what are some of the things that he tells us are in this first account? Okay, all that began that Jesus began to do and all the things that Jesus began to teach until when? Until he was taken up into heaven. So we know then, just by what he tells us about this first account, that, the, that it's some kind of a historical record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, correct? Until the day he was taken into heaven. Okay. Um, Kay asked us then to do a cross-reference on the one clue about this author that we're given, right? Theophilus. Now, if you did not have Kay's curriculum to guide you to have gone to Theophilus, what could you have done... Since she takes this and says, go look up in Luke, right? What if you didn't know about Luke, uh, about Theophilus being in the book of Luke? How would you and I, without the assistance of this curriculum, have found that? A word study on Theophilus. That could definitely help you, right? And if you didn't want to do a whole word study, if that didn't clue in, what else would you maybe do? A concordance, an exhaustive concordance. You would just go in and look his name up. An exhaustive concordance is like a dictionary. You just look up the words by the name of them, and then you, and from there, it would give you the reference where Theophilus was also mentioned in, script, in Scripture, right? Okay, so w she took us then to go look into the book of Luke, right? What did we learn in Luke? Uh, the verses she gave us was 1 through 4. But quite honestly, you could do the entire book of Luke, right? <laughs> what is What was the uh, reference that connects us in Luke? In verse 3. He, so here he also addresses Theophilus. And that's in chapter 1, verse 3 of Luke, right? Now, in that... Uh, opening statement what does he tell uh theophilus that he is writing these things for does he give us any in, uh, indications to that first writing what was going on there very cool so that you will know the exact things 
from about which you have been taught. Now, why do you think Theophilus might need to know the exact truth? What what is the implication there about? I mean, if you we don't have time to do a whole lot of research on this, obviously, and Kay didn't ask us. But did you ponder on that a little bit as to why would Theophilus want to know the exact truth about those things which he had been taught? Okay, maybe he, for him, his own self, is simply trying to investigate further about Jesus, right, to help confirm his own faith walk. Potentially, that's one, okay? Is there any other potential? Yes? There very likely could be some untruths, and so he wants to make sure that he gets the correct doctrine, right, so that he can retain the standard of sound doctrine that's out there about Jesus and his work and ministry up until the day that he was taken up okay and um did you actually go into one step further on that also one more possibility what about the what if theophilus was somebody that that luke is training up to go out and teach maybe theophilus is also going to be a minister and a witness himself and so he's giving him apologetic training in the word of god the soundness of the word of god right So those are three possibilities. Maybe it was for himself. Maybe it was because the false things were out there. Or maybe it was just for Theophilus to be trained up better, to have a better equipping, right? Okay, so it also addresses him. It was written, Luke was written, uh, that to know the exact truth. I'm shortening this a bunch. Okay, and that's in verse 4. Um, just off the top of your head, because we didn't do it all, but tell me what you know about the Gospel of Luke concerning the things that were written about Jesus. What kinds of insights does Luke give Theophilus so that he will know the exact truths? Okay, now this is cool because if he interviewed eyewitnesses, what does that tell you about our author, about this man, Luke? Yeah, or you could put it real simply, he's not an eyewitness. Absolutely. But it's important that we simply identify the fact that he's not an eyewitness because what does that help us do as far as eliminating potential people for, uh, for authorship of both Luke and Acts? Since Luke and Acts, neither one of them actually identify their, um, their author from within the writing itself, right? We want to come to a place where we can say, well, how do we know it was Luke? Well, the book, the gospel of Luke's a little easier to deal with as far as coming to that conclusion, right? Did anybody find some insights about the authorship of Luke that then we can pull it back into Acts eventually? Did you do any research on that? Why do you think that the gospel of Luke is by... Um, just by general knowledge if that it was Luke that wrote it. There's a really big clue, guys. The name of it. Thank you. Huh. 
Jesus, like, here's your sign. <laughs> the gospel of Luke. <laughs> exactly. All right. So we laugh at that, but it's almost sometimes so obvious that we miss it, really. But the, the sign is, here's your sign. My husband loves those old jokes of that guy. Well, here's your sign, right? All right. So we, we know that b- at least by tradition, it's very widely accepted. As a matter of fact, you can apply that same thought to all of the Gospels. The Gospels are Gospels written by the one who it is titled it by. Also, the great thing about the Gospel of Luke is that you can go back to very, very far back um, into the ancient writings, and it, that book is attributed to Luke. So that confirms it. That helps to validate that that's the truth. Um, so based on, the, on that, then secondarily what we want to do then is we want to try to link how do we know then that actually what we see in Acts or uh, Acts is written by the same person in Luke. So we want to see if we can merge some points that we see in the book of Luke and see how it matches up with what is being said in that first chapter of Acts, Correct. We want to look at some like points. It's just like we do when we try to validate prophecy. Is prophecy speaking of the Antichrist in Ezekiel or in Daniel and then again in Revelation? How do we know they're the same person? What do we do? We look for identifying markers that are similar. And and we look for identifying time references that puts it into the same time frame, right? We We start drawing conclusions that are logical. And once you start lining up enough points, you go, yep, that's it. That is the end-time Antichrist. Um, I remember in, when we did Daniel, there was one um, reference in there about the, the rather small horn compared to the little horn. And the rather small horn does a lot of things that look just like the Antichrist. But there was one really glaring problem when you came to your time referencing of that rather small horn, and that was... What kingdom did you remember him coming out of? Does anybody remember? Greece. And you were, oh, wait a minute, Greece. That's before Rome, right? Okay, so the, the little horn, who is the antichrist of the end of the age, is the one, he's going to come out of that fourth beast, which, which we've identified as, as Rome in that study. And so we now know that that rather small horn cannot be the antichrist because they're in two different kingdoms, Right? So that's kind of what we're going to be doing with Acts right now. We're going to try to line up some identifying markers that look similar, make sure they fall on a timeline that's in the same time referencing, right, or, or that falls sequentially as it should, because if there was a first writing, when did it come? First or second? First, duh, right? <laughs> duh. I know. It's another hard one. Here's your sign. <laughs> Thank you, Barbara. <laughs> All right, so that's what we want to do right now. We're going to look at some of these things. So he he speaks in Luke chapter 1, those first few verses, that he interviewed eyewitnesses. We know that in Luke, the the accounts there are of Jesus, right? Of Jesus' life and ministry. Now, one of the things I want to do then is this is in chapter 1, verses, was it 1 through 4 that we did on this one? I can't remember. I think that was right. So now I want to take you, because she did actually take us there. I was really happy. Uh, Go to 24, verses 44 to uh, 53, basically. And what I would like is somebody to read that little segment for me out loud. Because I, and while we are reading it, I want you to remember what you've seen 
in Acts chapter 1, the first, at least the first 14 verses anyway. And tell me, do you see any identifying markers that look like it's from the same author and the same time frame? Okay? So somebody read that, Luke 24, 44 to 53. Thank you, James. Wow. Okay. So put on your investigator hats, you know, your little eyeglasses, and tell me what did you see that were matches, or was there anything that you felt was glaringly a problem, like we came up with the grease issue with the, with the other example I gave? What are the things that are similar? What kind of things match what you see in Acts chapter 1? That he saw the, the Christ ascending up on high, was taken up into the clouds or up into heaven. All right? That's one match. Okay? It was fulfillment of Scripture. And so in Acts chapter 1, we see him saying that according to Scripture. Right? All right? That number one, there was instructions that they were to stay in Jerusalem. And why were they staying in Jerusalem? Wait for the promise from the, which the Father had promised. And in Acts chapter 1, what does he tell us that promise is? Coming of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, and once the Holy Spirit came, what was going to be the result? What was going to happen with them? Oh, okay, first they would have power, empowering uh, of them. But secondly, that they would be my witnesses. Starting where? In Jerusalem. Wow, that's a lot of a lot of markers. Would you say then, if you were doing a timeline, that you would put both Acts chapter one and Luke twenty-four on the same page? Absolutely. So Jesus is carried up there. To, now, when he concludes in Luke twenty-four, what happens when they are told they're supposed to go back? What do they do? There's one verse, and it tells you exactly what they did. They returned to Jerusalem to wait. Okay. So does that say, seem like it's a good connection then when you open up in Acts chapter 1? What do you see in Acts chapter 1 happening as he introduces it? He says, yes, I've written a previous account, right? And, I and the a previous account was all about these things, like the life and ministry of Jesus, right? And... Well, 
Yeah, and that's another point. That it, obviously it shows that there is more that he wants to record. He has more information about the the recording of the work of Jesus Christ, right? So there was the physical. Now, what is the difference then between the two works, between what we see in, in Luke, his first account, and what we see in the coming up here where we are in Acts? And we haven't seen a lot of it yet, but what, what is going to be the dif- distinguishing difference? What happened to Jesus at the close of, of Luke? He ascended into heaven. And when he opens Acts, he says, and after he ascended into heaven, right? So when we start moving forward in this book, we're going to begin to see basically then that that, uh, Acts does what? It picks up right where Luke left off. So all of a sudden, voila, you see very clearly this was volume one was uh, Luke and volume two is Acts. And that it's, I didn't know that, you guys. I learned that this week. That was my, did you guys know that? I had no clue. I mean, I've always heard that they're, uh, you know, closely associated, that these were the Gospels. I knew that they came in the same time frame. I knew it was about Jesus. One was about the birthing of the church. I knew that. But I did not know that there was such a close affiliation with Luke's in, Luke into Acts. I had no idea. That was cool news. So, woo, fun. All right. So, <laughs> I love it when I learn new things. <laughs> okay. So, we see that in Luke, it's the recording in the life of of Jesus. Uh, it also recorded um, his many appearances after his resurrection. Resurrection. I'm just going to put a few more things on here. Recorded appearances of Jesus after resurrection in Luke. He does this. And we see that pretty much in the last two uh, chapters, 23 and 24 of Luke. Um, and we definitely see him record his instruction. Number one, wait for Holy Spirit, for uh, what Father has promised. And then number two, you will be my witnesses. beginning at Jerusalem. Okay. So, Acts chapter 1, he reminds them that Jesus gave them those orders not to leave. He reminds them that the apostles are to be his witnesses. He reminds them that they saw Jesus taken up into heaven. He reminds them that they went back to Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, there's one new, particularly a large chunky piece of this that seems to be new information that was not in Acts, right? And that was that last part about who? Pardon? Uh, In the last part of Acts, I'm sorry. I moved out of Luke. Who, who is the last segment, the last paragraph of Acts about? Acts chapter 1. Matthias. That's right, the choosing of Matthias. So that's a new, a new insight. One of the things I did notice, let me pull out my little sheet here. Actually, when I kind of made a flow of thought for myself, I noticed that although he was re- definitely reviewing all these things that we saw in Luke, and you can see a definite matchup, But additionally, what he does do is he adds in a couple of little insights, a couple of little extra pieces of information. 
Did y'all notice that? Things that are not written in other places, there are little points that he drops in as he opens this new account in the book of Acts in order to um, basically just, I guess, develop the storyline a little bit more, give a little bit more insight about these apostles, particularly while they were waiting. They went back to Jerusalem to wait, and what were some additional insights? One of the, the, one of the first things he does tell us that's additional news was that when he told them um, to not leave Jerusalem but to wait, he had also presented himself alive, right? Does it give us some more insight about the fact that he had presented himself alive in this Acts account compared to what he said in Luke? Does it tell you how long he did this for? For a period of 40 days. It's not recorded in that way in Luke. But a period of over... a. Alive over a period of 40 days, for 40 days. Because what he did is he, he showed himself alive and then he leaves because what's about to happen? That Holy Spirit coming. Now, is there a designated time that, he, that the Holy Spirit would be coming? Was there a, a feast that it would fulfill? Absolutely. So he had to have done what he did during that limited time frame, which was designated. It was like it was a specific, set-apart, determined time frame, which I think is really another little thing that we don't have time to research and study, but it was insightful just to know that the time was uh, designated and limited and that he did this for a period of 40 days, and then he ascends. And he ascends, and he tells them when he ascends, uh, how long is it going to be for them to wait? Not long. <laughs> I love that. Okay, not long. <laughs> okay, the next thing in verses 6 to 11, he um, is teaching the apostles about them returning to Jerusalem and to wait for that instruction. There's another question, though, that's that a question that's presented to us that was not in the, the Luke account that we want to look at. Hold on a second here. He says to wait for the Spirit. Let me see if this marker will work. He says his command to them is to wait, right? Wait for the Holy Spirit. And that's in verse 5, correct? What do you see in verse 6 What that catches your eye? Yeah, there's a question in there, isn't it? What is the very first word? In, the, in verse 6. So, now, if there's a so, what does that tell you? It links it back to the uh, something previously stated, correct? In other words, it's a cause and effect kind of question. The question just doesn't come up out of clear blue. It isn't like he just starts a whole new, se a whole new segment of thought. He's actually saying, so, because I told them there to go and wait for the Holy Spirit, so they ask him a question about what? The coming kingdom. This is exciting for us because what did we just study? Ezekiel, right? Did you, Martha, did you see Ezekiel? Did Ezekiel immediately pop into your mind when you saw the question? All these promises about the kingdom. And what do you think is the association? Because we've studied it, but some, if they had not done Ezekiel, would not know this. What is the association in the mind of a Jew between the, the coming of the Holy Spirit and them uh, gaining back their kingdom? They are connected. And where do we see that? 
the promise of that new covenant that when the new covenant would come, they would receive the Spirit, right? And then do what? What would happen after? According to Ezekiel, they would be put back on their land. Yes, so you're, you're into Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, 39, right? Where he's talking about one day that, that he will pour out his spirit on them. So I pulled out a few verses just to put in here as extra cross-references. He says, wait for the Holy Spirit, and then they ask, is this, um, is this, is this now? Let me write it the way it says on here. Is this now? Got to get the right words. That. Thank you. <laughs> My pen's not working very good again. You are restoring. This is not working. I've gone through four of these so far. They're not working well. Oh, bless you. You got new ones. I like new ones. These are fun. <laughs> they always work. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you. I, okay, so you are restoring the kingdom to who? Okay, now this is very, very specifically relating then to, to who? The Jews, right? So interestingly, they see the falling of the Holy Spirit as something that's beneficial to the Jews. It does take them back in their mind then by connection. And the reason it does is, now Kay took us to a couple of verses in the New Testament. She asked us to look at, um, let's see, what was it? I've forgotten now. Somewhere in Luke, right? She took us in Luke. Okay, in Luke 22, I'm going to write that down, Luke 22. There it is, here, I do have it down. Luke 22, 28 to 30, and also Matthew 25, 31, correct? That's on page 8, day 3 of your homework, just in case you want to find it. And why do they associate the kingdom being restored to Israel with the, Israel with the coming of the Holy Spirit? Well, according to volume 1, Luke 22, what had he... Uh, taught previously to this Theophilus. Yeah, that number one, the Jews would one day have thrones in the kingdom of heaven. So they're kind of interested in having that, that coming in, right? Right. Okay. True. And also what else was taught? They would eat and drink with him in that kingdom, correct? The Father had assigned Jesus a kingdom, and they were looking forward to that. As a matter of fact, the whole time Jesus is on the, in his earthly ministry, what did the Jews keep bringing up over and over in the book of Matthew? Yeah, that's right. When is your kingdom coming? Is this the time? Are we there yet? Are you him? Are you our king? What did they put above his cross at the crucifixion? The king of the Jews. That's what the whole book of Matthew, right, was showing that Jesus, in fact, was their king. What they didn't understand was that there was going to be a time of lapse between his first coming and when he would come to actually fulfill this, right? So Ezekiel, go to Ezekiel 39, and let's look at verse 28 and 29. Somebody else look up Joel 2:28. Who would like to do those two? One do Ezekiel. Who's going to do Ezekiel? Susan will do Ezekiel 30, uh, 39, 28, 29. Who will do Joel? Joel. 
Okay, thank you. Joel 2, 28, and we need Zechariah 12, 8 to 10. Who wants to do Zechariah? Janice will get Zechariah. Last one is Isaiah, Isaiah 32, 15 to 20. Who will do that one? Isaiah? Celeste, you want to do that one? Okay. All right. I want you guys to read those for me. Let's start with Ezekiel. Uh, 39, verse 28 and 29. I hope that's the right one. Okay, now I gave you a teeny-weeny piece of it. As you know, if you keep reading, what happens once the, the Spirit is poured out on the house of Israel, according to Ezekiel? Then they're going to do what? Be placed back where? On their land. That's when they believe that... that so in, in the teaching of Ezekiel, which are their, one of their ancient writings, there's a connection between the coming of the Holy Spirit and them being placed back on their land, right? So they have already got this by association. Luke mentions it he does it on, on a much more uh, superficial level he doesn't go into all the details like ezekiel does and and ezekiel profoundly does so right over and over and over we saw the connection of the pouring out of the holy spirit and the, them being put back on their land and when they uh, the dry dead bones right the, they would come to life and the spirit of god would would give them life and then they would go back on their land and so that's strongly taught all through Ezekiel. Um, go to Joel 2.28 because this one uh, Peter is going to address in our next week's homework, I think. Okay? All right, good. Okay, so in that statement, he speaks of it as being the end time that the Spirit would be poured out and these various things will happen. Now, we're going to see in the next chapter the relation of that, the realization of that particular prophecy uh, in part being fulfilled, right? Okay, now we're going to look at, um, let's go to um, Zechariah 12, 8 to 10. Okay, so in that reference, he again mentions the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. If you keep going in, in Zechariah, actually 12, 13, and 14, as we learned through 
our Ezekiel work, those three chapters give so much information about that very end time when God will save all Israel one day, right? When he will bring to fruition what Romans chapter 11 speaks about, that, that when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and when that work is finished, then he will save all Israel. So that's what he is speaking of then in Zechariah, that day when the nation of Israel is saved. Now, do you remember in Zechariah also how the Israel is saved? What is it that happens to Israel in those days? How many make it and how many don't? Only one-third come through refined, having come into salvation. What happens to the other two-thirds? They're cut off, meaning they die during those days, right? And so the one-third who are living on the face of the earth at that time, who survive and bow their knee and do just what Janice read, they will mourn as one who mourns for an only child, and they will look upon him whom they have pierced. When that occurs and God pours out his spirit upon them, then those are going to be the Jews who are all Israel that Jesus saved. He will put them back on their land. Awesome, right? Okay. Can you see why the Jews, when, when he said, wait for the Holy Spirit, and then, I'm, and, then, and then they responded with a question? Well, then, is this the time when... Almost looks like an arbitrary question. If we didn't have Ezekiel under our belts, I don't think we would have fully grabbed hold of this verse. We'd have probably just scooted right on by it and kept going, right? I would have, because I wouldn't have totally understood why that question at that point. It would have been a little confusing to me and without the history of all that research and study that we've already done I think I would have missed it right um, does Isaiah give us any more good stuff I can't remember what that one was Isaiah 32 15 to 20 Okay, so what it's doing is it's describing the beauty of that end-time kingdom that they were looking forward to. Isaiah was prophetically looking forward to the one day, which is why they were anxious for it, right? Were they not, I mean, wouldn't you be anxious for all that? If you lived in the world that they lived in where everything was a struggle and a strife and you were constantly having oppressors come upon you, and at this point in history when we're thinking about Isaiah, this is as um, the, the northern tribes had already or were going into exile, and there was the prophetic word that the southern ones were going to be going into exile. And so they were looking at a time when they were going to lose it all. And he's giving him a word of of prophecy, of hope, that one day it's going to be restored and it's going to be better, right? Do you guys remember that one verse that we said it's going to be better than it was at the first? I, I can't remember which one. That's right, the temple. Concerning the temple, that the temple will be better than the one at the first. It's going to be, that's right, that was in those last uh, three or four chapters there of Ezekiel. So I think it's really exciting when you, when you have enough knowledge. So I would say to all of you, give yourselves a round of applause because not one of you were lost. 
You all got it, right? But think if you hadn't done Ezekiel, how you may not have gotten that. So this is like what you say about this is precept upon precept. And as you learn one point, you sometimes you have no idea. I told you we were going to tie Ezekiel in, didn't I not? And you guys were going, yeah, right. How do you tie Ezekiel into Acts, right? Well, already we have two or three times already. So this is, this is really fun. Okay, so he's restoring. He, that was the question. And we looked at Ezekiel. I'm going to write these on here. Ezekiel 39. Uh, 28 and 29, we saw Joel 2, which we're going to cover next week again from a different perspective, but it's going to be helpful to have uh, looked at it here. Isaiah 32, 15 to 20, and then we looked at Zechariah 12, 8 to 10. Now, none of those were in your homework. I think it, the Isaiah one might have been in our homework, but the others were not in our homework. But what Kay gave to us was... Luke, because, and why do you think she gave us the Luke one? Yeah, exactly, same author, Luke, trying to, again, tie together Acts with Luke so that you can understand when, you, when the, um, the apostles make this question, it makes sense if you understand that what they've just come out of is if, if Theophilus' training has just brought him through, mentioning over and over, even in the book of Luke, about this kingdom, right? And s- the danger has, has to come, though, where you have to start splitting things, right? So let's talk about that next. Let me give you the Luke one up here, and then also he took you to Matthew to see it in Matthew 25, 31. Okay, now he says, of, of the coming of way for the Holy Spirit, and what will the Holy Spirit do for them? Yeah. You will receive power. Now, did anybody do their word study? Okay. Give, give me your definition on that. Okay. He says it's dunamis, and it's number uh, 1411. Uh, by definition, it literally means power, but what else does it mean? Might and strength. Did anybody take their definition to the next uh, book or next word study reference by chance to get additional insight? There you go. It's the ability then to exert force for performing a function. That's really cool, isn't it? So the idea that the power falls upon you, it's not just the idea of this uh, supernatural thing which dwells within us, although that is true, because we get that in another statement. But here he's saying power will come upon you. And what is the power's purpose? What is the power going to do for them? Allow them to be witnesses. Make them to be witnesses, right? Um, So it will, and then you will be my witnesses. Yes. Might, uh, potentially. And, and remember, again, the context will rule for interpretation. And would, would you say that there were times with these 12 in particular that there was that kind of power for them, that they had the might of, of the ability to do miracles? Did God empower them to do miracles? Yes, yes absolutely. 
Yeah, right off the bat, we're going to begin to see it, right? So we're going to see demonstrations of this. So the power and the might can, can be both um, shown in a supernatural, powerful way, like through miracles and signs, right? But it can also be simply shown through the witnessing, right? And the strength and the, and the vitality to be able to do that. Also, the clarity of speech. He goes on to tell us about this Holy Spirit in the next part. And hold on, let me, let me though look, before we do anything else, I want to look at Jesus' response. Because I want you to see uh, how we're going to split hairs on this. Jesus' response. Because it's going to be, this is going to be something that we're going to have to do through the entire book of Acts, is split the hairs on what is being talked about, right? He reveals to us the necessity in this particular verse to split hairs between the two kinds of kingdoms, correct? There are going to be times when in the book of Acts, he's addressing a different kind of kingdom than this question pertained to, right? He wants to know here about this kingdom that's going to be restored to Israel, what we know that reference is, is to what kind of a kingdom? Which kingdom is it? Give me the, the uh, identifying title of that reference time, time in history. The millennial kingdom. So he's actually making, although they don't call it that, obviously, but we're going to call it the millennial kingdoms. For the sake of the time that we study in um, this book of Acts, I'm going to occasionally ask you, which kingdom is this? Is this the millennial kingdom? Or what is the other kind of kingdom then that is going to come up? They are supposed to be working and being witnesses to build up the kingdom, right? What kind of kingdom is that referring to? Is that talking about the millennial kingdom? No. What is that talking about? It's really the church, isn't it? And so it's the spiritual kingdom. Right? They're to build up the spiritual kingdom, i.e. the church. And sometimes you have to split hairs and decide, well, once in a while when they mention the kingdom, they are talking about the millennial kingdom. Are you, are you following me? So here's one of those times when, again, the value of knowing your, t- your time frames and knowing your identifying markers of each one that's going to help you to say as you're reading along when he mentions the kingdom, do this for the kingdom or enter into the kingdom or do whatever. The context is going to rule, but what's going to give you your boundaries is your knowledge of which kingdom he's speaking of. Okay? Now, if when I did it, so the first one, the response is it's either the millennial kingdom or, number two, it's the spiritual kingdom this is kind of a side note i'm taking you guys into but i think it's really important for us to identify this right now at the at the get-go of this book because it's going to come up a lot and this is a perfect time to see this i think so there's a contrast between those two and this spiritual kingdoms i.e the church meaning or the church age if you want to call it that that it's going to, well, I don't really want to call it the church age. I think it's just the church. Okay. Um, And by the way, how do you enter into the church? By the Holy Spirit through faith, right? How do you enter into the millennial kingdom? How will the one-third enter into the millennial kingdom? By faith. 
So both are by faith. You must be saved in order to enter. So that's going to be another phrase that's going to come up occasionally, that they have to enter it by faith. Don't let that word faith, though, trick you into thinking, oh, that means this kingdom, when it might be meaning some another kingdom. They both are entered by faith. Okay? All right. Both entered. Let's put that up here. Both entered by faith. Just to keep that as a, as a doctrine that you don't forget. Because it, it could trick you up occasionally to think that it's speaking of one kingdom or another. All right. All right. He says then about waiting for the Holy Spirit that they're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. How did you define baptize? This is a really great word. And it's important that we actually make sure we get the right word on this. I don't have any more room. Maybe I should write it over here. I'll put it up here, you guys, okay? What number is baptized when you saw that? Look that. And give me the, the transliteration. Baptizo. Now, does that contrast to any other word? Is there another word for baptism that you run into that's very closely associated? It, yes, but it, instead of baptizo, there's also the word what? Bapto, B-A-P-T-O, correct? So I, what I want to do, though, is I want to show you that it's a contrast. Well, it's not exactly a contrast, but they're different. They have different... Um, I'm just doing this. This is one, and this is another one. The one that we're looking at in this Acts reference is baptizo, not bapto, okay? I just want to distinguish that for you right now so you see it when you come across it in future. Now, what does it mean to baptizo? To immerse or submerge, okay? To dip in water, to cleanse or to clean. Very good. Those are all really good. Overwhelm. I love that word, overwhelm. I got to say, would you say, Lisa, that would probably be your biggest pick if you had to pick out of all three? Yeah, yeah me too. Okay, now, yes. Plunge or drench. Okay, now, this is what's cool. Let's try to explain what the difference then, if, if as a matter of fact, both of these words, baptizo and baptio, can both mean basically the same thing that we just said to dip or to submerge or to cleanse or to wash, right? It can mean all those things. Both of them can. But what is the distinguishing difference between those two words? Did anybody uh, come across an explanation of how you identify baptizo from babto? Yeah, I did. You, you're so sound. Now, come on, James. Be a little more enthusiastic. That was... Oh, you just... Would you like to read my notes? <laughs> Yes, the pickles. Got it. Pickles. Does everybody know about the pickles? Okay, try just explain it to me, James. Basically, it was some guy giving a pickle recipe, and there was something that you do to the pickles to, pre to prepare them, and that was bapto. Okay, so bapto was a cucumber. And this is the vinegar. A, vi a vinegar brine, right? 
And the brine, what does the brine do to the pickle once you've, di you've dipped it in the, in the salt? It's usually salt and water, by the way, hot salt and water. And you do a quick dip, and then it goes into the pickle jar, and it gets poured with this vinegar brine over it, and then you seal it, of course. You hope you hear the pop and all those good things, right? So what does the vinegar brine then do? How does that, is there, what, what happens with this? It's a transformation. And it is a permanent transformation, and it is a full and complete transformation. That cucumber really ceases to be a cucumber. It becomes a pickle, pickle right? So the vinegar brine transforms it. It, it says it of this, it says, um, yeah, temp Isn't that cool? All that was learned. There's some sticky on there. All that was learned from this lovely man who was a Greek writer, and he happened to write down a pickle recipe and used both of those words in one recipe card so that we non-Greek speaking people could see the distinguishing difference between bapto and baptizo. Okay, so when we look at the idea here that we are going to wait for the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit then is going to um, baptize us, we will be baptized, you will be, I'm going to put it on here, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit, this is the word pickle. So my question is, have you been pickled? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm pickled, and I'm probably a salty pickle. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm pickled, but I'm salty. <laughs> okay. All right. So that was a great word study, I thought. Not to be confused with BAPTO, okay? So now, on day two and three on page five, she gave us some additional insights about what the result is going to be when you're baptized. Those who are baptized, somebody put sticky tape on this. This is not good. It's on there really bad. Who did that? I'm going to have to spank them. Put them in the corner or something. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to get this off because it's right where I'm writing. Maybe somebody can get it off later, but... You need fingernails for sure. Don't ever put this kind of double stick tape on the boards. That's not a good idea. <laughs> okay, that's off. Now, all right, tell me what we know about uh, baptism. What is baptism going to do for you? Oh, yeah, really, it's not amazing, according to some. James, you are really borderline this morning, man. You, he, took it, he took his uh, his genius pills this morning. I can't get that off. That's true. You're absolutely right. <laughs> okay, in Luke 24, she took us to Luke 24, verse 44 to 53 again. He says of the baptism of the Holy Spirit there, what's going to happen with you? When you are baptized, 
Yes. When you looked at, um, let me look here. He doesn't say it there. I was thinking it was said also in Acts. He did, but it doesn't. It just says that it will be, it will come upon you, and you will receive power. Right in verse eight, and in Luke he says, and you will be clothed with power from on high. Same thing, right? So he's really already taught this. You will be clothed with power. And so now we know what that power is. That's the power to be able to accomplish the work by which he gave you the baptism of the Spirit for. Uh, pardon? Is there not? I know it. Can, we can never get away from that, can we? A covenant is everywhere. Okay, I'm just going to put that reference on here. Luke 24 will be closed. Um, and he says that you will receive it. Now, what will the Spirit then do for us? We looked in John also, page Five and six of your homework, if you want to flip there. What will the Spirit do for us then? Let's finish this list out. He's identified there. Yes. Oh, there you go. Okay, if you're thirsty. Okay, so he's sad. That's good. I didn't get that one. Satisfies our spiritual. I love that. Thirst. That's good, James. Oh, and I love that. When we did the Gospel of John, do you remember when Jesus stood up in the midst of the people? And it was during a certain feast. Do you guys remember that? And it was during the feast wh where they would, pour, they would pour out water as a symbolic picture of that day when Jesus would, or when the Christ who was to come would pour out his spirit upon them, right? And so Jesus stood up during the time of that feast ceremony when they were pouring out w water, and he says, come to me, you who are thirsty, and I will give you, out of your belly shall uh, flow uh, rivers of, of living water, right? It was just the coolest thing when we did that. Okay, so that's in John. And where are you at in that one? Okay, perfect. Okay, John 7. All right, now, what else do we know about this, the Spirit? How is he identified? What does he do for us? Yes, we'll be our helper. I love that. He is the Spirit of truth. That's right. We'll bring to remembrance all things he taught, basically, right? Okay. Um, well, I think we can, I'm just going to put on here, these, these are all out of John, and it's uh, chapters 14 to 16, right? And you all did that whole list. He's going to teach us all things. He's going to bring things to remembrance. I like this one too. He will bear witness of Jesus. The Spirit will bear witness of Jesus. Now, linking that back to what he's just told them about them receiving the Holy Spirit and then they will be his witnesses, how do you see then the, that actually working itself out in reality? How does the Spirit bear witness of Jesus? He, 
Okay, he does that. And then what do we do with it? We speak it. So because the Spirit's in us, then we speak out what the Spirit gives to us, and therefore the Spirit becomes a witness of Jesus. Isn't that cool? That you're a vessel for the Spirit to be the witness. I never thought of it that way. Did you guys think of it that way? That is the coolest thing. It's like, gosh. I always wondered, and he will bear witness of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will. But he does that because he speaks through us as he discloses things to us and as he reveals things and as he brings to remembrance things. Yes, he is. And that's in a reference we didn't go to in Isaiah, right? <laughs> is it in our, what is your reference then? John what? Oh, yeah. So you, 14, 16. Okay. I didn't see that, but yes, absolutely. And we know that he is going to be our counselor. So he will counsel us. He will bring things to remembrance. He will help us to remember the things that we're supposed to remember. Um, you know, have you ever had a conversation with someone as you're trying to witness and you just can't remember and you can't remember and you can't remember? Yes, Lisa. Yes. Oh, really? The, the, oh, that's cool. Will be with us forever. Cool. I love that one, too. That's in 1416 also. Yes. Actually, I can remember. And, and where will he be? Did you all pick up on that one? Where will the spirit be? In us. Will be in us. I can tell you, I've come across people that didn't believe that either. I think so. I, I believe that that's exactly what he's saying. There's no reason why the Spirit would leave, right? That's exactly right. And he says he will, he's going to seal us with it, and he doesn't re- remove what he's given, right, once it's given. This is why, again, we see the evidence that you cannot lose your salvation if, in fact, you're truly saved. If you're really saved, you never lose the Holy Spirit. Now, there, the, the question sometimes lies in, were they actually saved? Because sometimes you see people turn around and walk away and totally live in, in both rebellion and in rejection, right, of something that maybe they claimed earlier. So then you wonder, does that person, did that person ever actually know the Lord? And that's something we can question. But really, who, who's the one that knows? The Lord. And so all we can do is walk in, tr- in the light of what a person proclaims. So if a person is proclaiming that they are a Christian, yet they're living in total disobedience, then what should you do with that person? How should you treat that person? As a... Pardon? Absolutely. could be that you need to pray for their salvation secretly, but then address them to their face as if they're being, being held accountable for what they say they believe. You have to both address them as... If, because if they're saying they're a believer, you have to say, okay, you say you're a believer, I'm going to take your word for it. Do you know that believers cannot do these things and live in this way and, and still have God's blessing on their life, right? So it's, it, that, that's it. So it's, he is going to be in us. He's going to be in us forever is awesome. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, so it, that's exactly right. One of the things that we could do would be then to take this timeline 
for the book of Acts and say, okay, we start with the cross and that Jesus went to the tomb, correct? I love my timelines, don't you? Okay. Then he resurrects, correct? And there are witnesses of it. And he witnesses of this for how long? 40 days. And at the end of the 40 days, what does he do? Ascends. And he says of us to wait for the Holy Spirit, correct? So what's going to fall at some point? The Holy Spirit. And then he says at some other point, he is going to return. So here we are in this time right here, and it's called the time of the witness. At this point, right? They're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and then they're going to be his witnesses. So we are right there in the middle. This is where where the book of Acts is, is this time called the witness. Previous to this, in Luke, he covered all this time previous of the days of Christ's working and ministry. So it really is a, con- a, a straight line continuity again of him progressively just going through the whole life, and then he picks right back up. Chapter 1 gives the, the merging of those two uh, accounts that he's written, and then he picks right up where he left off. All right. Now let's go into, we've got to get to the next part of being chosen. So the first part was they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Who are, who are we talking about then in this book so far? The witnesses, right? Those who are going to witness for Jesus. The witnesses of Jesus. They are empowered by the Holy Spirit is your first point for today. The second point is going to be that they are also chosen. Uh, and they were chosen to witness. He, it's, he tells us, if you notice key words, right? Everybody mark keywords? Hey, let's just do a few keywords for fun. <laughs> because it's, it's always good to see what kind of things you, you marked and made lists on if you, if you marked them, right? <laughs> okay, what, did, what are your keywords for chapter one? Apo- obviously, people, places, and events, so apostles. All right? Always have to have Jesus in there, right? <laughs> it's always safe, right? Jesus, love, and God. <laughs> right. Okay. The Holy Spirit. The Father. The Kingdom. <laughs> You have it. So, Margaret, I totally understand. I pulled all my stuff out last night. It's, I had a stack like this, I think, yeah. over here because I, my, my pages of doing my homework got so confused I couldn't even figure out where my work was and where the questions were. It was, it was a nightmare. So. Okay. Cool. I didn't do that part, but that's awesome. Okay, so witnesses, definitely. Yes, she did. And we didn't cover much on that. That surprised me. First she asked us to mark it and then doesn't. But why do you think it was significant to mention prayer as to pay attention to it, in other words? Because it was part of the process of the choosing of the other 
uh, disciple, right? The one to replace Judas. And so the fact that she says, oh, by the way, Mark prayer, that helped us to focus in on what was motivating them and what was driving them to get to the place where they said, oh, we need to choose a replacement, right? So that was really good, all right? Baptism, of course. We got to have baptism. And then that word power also, because she gave that one to us and asked us to look it up. So I'll just go ahead and add that in there. But there was one more, and it's right out of the title of my column here. Choose or chosen, right? That he chose. It's only mentioned twice, but it is significant in this particular chapter, it turns out. Okay, so let's look at that right uh, word. I want you to find it. It's in two verses, verse 2 and verse 4. Oh, 24, sorry, sorry. Two and 24, you're right. <laughs> I love it, you guys keep me on my toes. Okay, all right, so in, chap- in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 2, concerning the apostles, who, d- who did the choosing? Jesus did the choosing of them. So what we see here is Jesus... And he gives this basically back in, was it verse 2, right? When he's giving a recap or a a reminder to Theophilus that in his first writing, he recorded these things about Jesus and his ministry and that in that choosing, he had chosen these apostles, right? That in that writing that he had chosen these apostles. So he's just reminding him, how did these apostles come about? Did these apostles, especially when you're looking at the birthing of the new church, now this is really kind of a powerful and important point he's actually making here. Because what would be the tendency, do you think, um, as the generations pass for people, as far as their perspective about those 12 to be? Yeah, what's so great about them? Right. As if if that these were men that were chosen because there was something unique or special about them, right? But the only thing that's unique or special about them, um, really, well, it's kind of twofold. But number one is that who chose them? Jesus did it. And he's reminding him, remember back in Luke, when the Gospel of Luke? I told you about that. And you get the whole unfolding of that in, the, in that particular Gospel. So uh, Jesus chose these apostles. That's significant. Um, he, he then gave those apostles uh, orders, right, that they were to go back and wait. He tells about the ones that he chose, these apostles, that they would do what? They will be his witnesses, right? Now, did, he, did they tell us uh, anything more about the witnessing? How would that happen? Uh, by the Holy Spirit, they would be their witnesses, yes. And did he give them any kind of geographical idea about what they were going to do? Now, this is going to become very important. Where where are they going to witness? Yeah, Judea and Samaria, and then to remotest parts of earth. Now, just looking at that particular thing in list form, that's one of the great things about the inductive process is when you 
when you take a verse and list it, all of a sudden you might see something that you didn't see before. What do you see in the um, verse there? That you will be that he they are going to be his witnesses in Judea. Yes, that it is an exponential growth in, uh, of the, of something, right? That as they begin, they begin first at the heart of where they are, where Jerusalem, and then to where Judea and Samaria. Right now, what is Judea and what is Samaria? The northern and the southern tribes of Israel. That's what that is. So we got the northern. And so basically, first you're going to start in Jerusalem. Then you're going to do all, all of Israel. And then from Israel to the uttermost parts of the world or the, the remotest parts of the earth. Okay. In Luke, he basically said the same thing. And go back and look in 20, Luke 24, 47. 47 and 48, actually. 47, what does he say about what they're going to do? They're going to pro- proclaim Christ's name where? To all the nations, beginning where? Beginning from Jerusalem. Do you see how it's the, the continuity is there, that he gives the same message? And in, tw- in 2448 of Luke, he reminds them that they are going to be what? His witnesses. So again, here we see in Luke that it's God that chose them. He said, you will be my witnesses and you will start from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. What is Acts doing? Exactly that, right? Isn't that amazing? So we have, we have this great flow here. So you can go and see these in Luke. I'm just going to put it over here as a reference for you. Luke uh, 24, 47, and 48 show you that this is exactly what he did with them. We see there are how many apostles? Well, there were 12, but in this account, there's now 11. That's right. There are 11 apostles named. Which verse was that? 13, right? Okay. Now what we're, do, we're at to is we're ready to look to see then about this Matthias. How do we get the 12? And how, what are we going to do in our minds about the view concerning this man called Matthias? Um, how many of you have heard varying degrees of conversation about the choosing of Matthias, whether it's good or whether it's bad or whatever, right? Me too. And I've never really pondered it that much. I have always felt like, well, it says Matthias, so, you know, I'm just going to leave it there. Because all the others are more speculation, correct? I mean, it is what it is. It is what it says. Now, having studied this, how many of you did some really pretty good research on the choosing of Matthias? Did you lay out the scenario in your mind of what was occurring at the time tell me the unfolding process how did Matthias come about to be chosen uh, at this time okay but how did he think that right okay so that's what he tells at the end that he says I feel like we need to to uh, replace him but why did he feel he had to replace him? Because of what? Thank you, James. Number one. Okay, let's just do this. Let's just start. Uh, let's make a simple unfolding list of what transpired in that room at that time. Um, they are in prayer. Number one. No, they start with prayer. They're in prayer. Look at the very first. 
Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, because it's really kind of cool because they were praying a bunch of times. And that is exactly, I think, why Kay asked us to look at the word prayer and mark it. Because all of a sudden at the very close, it's actually the last half. The first 14 verses of this chapter are all that are uh, reminders, basically, of what was in the first account in Luke. And he intermingles it with a couple of new points. But basically, he's just reminding them, reminding them of what was said in volume one of his writing. Now he starts here in verse 14, and he begins to give them a whole, one whole new piece of the story. And it's significant and kind of set off to itself as an independent message because it's how that other apostle was replaced, the one that had had abandoned by his uh, sinfulness, which was Judas, how Judas then was uh, replaced by Matthias. And so we get a whole record of how that happened. We see, first of all, that they are in prayer. Hold on, see if I can find my... I have a really good list on this. It's better than this one. Okay, give it to us. Oh, that's good. Okay, so Luke 12, what was that? Luke 6, 12 to 16. Jesus also prayed before he selected his 12. His Yes, that's true, too. That is also true. I mean, there actually, this subject of the choosing of the apostles, I think it could be an entire Bible study. You could spend an awful lot of time tracking the unfolding of it, who came first, how they got brought in, what was the messages to them, you know, what and little tidbits like this, which is so profound, especially where we're at right now, where you see that Jesus himself withdrew to a place to pray before the choosing took place. Now, what I think is very profound is, although, yes, they were in prayer, was it through their prayer that they were able to make a decision? No. So you have to keep going with this story. First, they're in prayer. Then, I can't find my other list, so you guys are going to have to help me with it. Yes. So Peter then has... Peter... um, Because he's been in prayer, Peter is reminded, right, of Scripture. A Scripture comes to his mind, correct? Aha, a Scripture. I remember a Scripture about this betrayer of the Christ. And all of a sudden, from there, what does he say about it? Okay, that the betrayer uh, was prophesied. And um, the prophecy must be fulfilled. Okay, so what did happen? Did it get fulfilled? Yes, it did. How did what exactly? So he goes on and he explains all the things that he did. He says um, it became. Um, wait a second. Yeah, I'm looking to find where now this man. 
This man who was prophesied, he acquired a field with a piece of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open into the middle of, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field has become uh, called field of blood. And he says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate. Now, this is really cool. Go back to your Levitical study. Why would a, a field of blood become desolate? It's unclean. The Jews, blood is reserved for what? The altar only. It's, for, it's reserved for God's wor- the worship of God. It's a picture of the shed blood of that coming Christ. And so God, when he established Israel as a nation, he said blood is reserved for one thing and one thing only. For worship of me at the altar and that is where it must be given now any other blood contact that they would have along the way what did they have to do ceremonially be cleansed in some way or another there was various forms of of systems that they had to go through of washing or burying something or whatever or being separated for a period of time or taking a bath or whatever so he says because it's called a field of blood of course let his homestead be made desolate. It was, right? The, they would have avoided that plot of land like, like the plague, right? And let no one dwell in it. And then he says, and there's one more point, though, that how also was prophesied besides the fact of what I think what's really cool is what had just happened before their eyes concerning Judas? This, this thing happening. So now when Peter, after prayer, stands up and says, I just remembered a verse. I remember about, about this, this betrayer that this was prophesied, that he would, he would have, a, that his plot of land, his possession, that it would become desolate and that no man would dwell in it. And look, look what just happened. He bought that land with that piece of money that he earned by betraying the Christ. And now, it, and then his, he fell over dead in it. Now it's considered unclean land and no one will dwell in it. They will, won't even probably walk in it. They will walk around it, right? So, I mean, he had a real scenario right there where the scriptures had been fulfilled in that very moment for them concerning that betrayer. Now they know the betrayer's name, right? Judas. Judas. Before, all they knew was it was a betrayer that had been prophesied through uh, uh, David. So then there's the second part, however. Then let another one take his office. So what? What he did in that moment is Peter stood up after prayer, having the scripture come to his mind. He went, oh, my gosh, this part's been fulfilled. We need to fulfill the next part. We need to make sure this second part happens. It says that he mu- there must be somebody to replace him. It's not like it's going to happen all by itself, right? He says, um, and let another man take his office. Let. That shows a verb of, of action on their part. You let another take his place. So, therefore, he says, do you see the therefore? Therefore, it is necessary. Now, this is really, I think, really clarifies to me the significance of what's going on in the mind of of Peter and those that are there. It's necessary that of the men who have accompanied all of us at, at that time that the Lord went in and out among us, Begin, and he gives the he gives the credentials. He has to have seen his baptism, has to be there all the way through his ministry until the time when he was taken up. 
one of these who qualifies in this way must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So we see that he mentions this betrayer. He, li- he then, I'm going to do this. He lists qualifications required. So he did do due diligence, did he not? And he says, um, we must fulfill prophecy. Because it says, let another take that office. Okay, so what we can see at this point, up to this point, is there's a great deal of spiritual enlightenment and spiritual guidance that seems to be going on. He's been in prayer. He's thought it through. He's seen these scriptures. He's recognized fulfillment of part of it already, and he sees now a need to take care of the rest of it, right? Absolutely. The power of, it's almost like Holy Spirit power, right? We do know that although the Holy Spirit has not fallen at this point for the filling permanently, do we also know, however, that in the Old Testament, which P.S., by the way, we're still in the Old Testament, (laughs) right? Historically, until the falling of the Spirit, we're still in the Old Testament. So, uh, because we're under the old law, right? The old law is still in place for them until the filling of the Spirit. Now Now they're... fully sealed now although this yes jesus has died on the cross and that has um legally been taken care of once for all but we're we're in this process of transition so this first chapter is still showing us that moving from the old into the new so although the holy spirit is not in them to give them revelation the spirit comes and goes to give revelation so i would say i would very clearly say that this looks to me like the spirit is really bringing to his remembrance a verse, right? And giving him power to speak, correct? And he's doing that. I just clearly see a demonstration of exactly what they're, been, they're being instructed to do. That's right. But I'm saying that Peter is by the, by the Holy Spirit now speaking is what I'm saying. Yes, we know David did. And there's a good example of what we just said. The Spirit fell and it came and went on people even in the old. Okay, so although he didn't have the Holy Spirit yet, he obviously had a Holy Spirit working in him at this moment. So then he says, um, then, then in verse 124, what did it say that he sought after? What was it they wanted in, in, as a result of what they were going to be doing here? They wanted to know what the Lord's will was. It says that, Lord, he says, so now they go back and they pray again, right? Prayer again. So we have prayer here and we have prayer here. Prayer again and he says, uh, Lord, basically, who have you chosen? Correct? He's not saying this is who we think. This is what we've all decided. Let's all put in a bit. Let's all put in um, a vote. 
and I'll vote for Lois, and some of you vote for Susan, and some of you vote for Brenda, whatever, right? We're not, and we're leaving the men out. I guess I should add James and Craig in there, and yeah, and Don. Some of the guys should get in on it too, right? Uh, uh, certainly Carl, he's definitely qualifies. So we should definitely put some of these names in there. Let's all just take a vote and see which one it is. Is that what they did? No, no they did not. They went to prayer. And in prayer, they said, Lord, we want to know who you have chosen. Then how did they make the final decision? They cast lots. So number one, they asked for God to show them who. And number two, they cast lots. Now, uh, how many of you know much about casting lots? And how many of you did any other than the one verse that Kay took us to? Did anybody else do more research on that? Yes? No? Oh, my gosh, you missed having a great little rabbit trail to go on. It was day five you could have, you know. <laughs> you were at the end of your work, although you were probably sweating bullets going, thank you, Lord, I'm done. Okay, what was the verse in Proverbs 16.33? What insight does that give you about the idea of casting lots, that subject? Yeah, he says to deter, it is basically, it, the purpose of casting lots is to determine the will of the Lord, Right? Okay, casting lots to determine the will of God. How many of you have come across the subject of casting lots in any previous studies? Okay, very good. Leviticus is an excellent one. What did, who said that? Okay, Lisa, tell us what you know about when they cast lots back in Leviticus. Was it sanctioned by the Lord? Was the result of the lot abided by and respected? I mean, what was the outcome of that? Okay. So there is one demonstration of a time when casting of lots was used to determine, again, the will of God to choose wisely. Now, why do you think it would be required to... cast a lot in that regard if you don't know what to do what does casting lots do in their mindset that's right it's all based then on god's determinations god's um in other words there's no such thing as luck there's no such thing as flipping a coin and hoping it's all in their mindset the idea of casting of lots was was specifically to determine God's will. Now, what I thought was cool, here's my research. I'll just read a couple things. Research for casting lots. I looked in lots of dictionaries but, or, and, and other things. One was the Dictionary of Bible Themes. Another one was the Tyndale uh, Bible Dictionary. So those are two that I referenced here, but all, they all pretty much say the same thing. I, after a while, I just quit reading because they were all saying the same thing. Okay, lots were, u- were only used for important decisions. So in other words, they were not vicariously used at any whim. They didn't say, oh, let's cast lots and find out, you know, if you're going on your date tonight or not, right? No. It was for important decisions, and it was for things where they were not sure how to handle it. Secondly, uh, lots were only used when two things were in place, their own wisdom or biblical injunctions. In other words, scriptures did not give them clarification, did not give them significant uh, guidance. So if they... If they didn't have their own wisdom that they felt confident in or if there was no biblical instruction, that's when they would cast a lot, okay? Now, another thing is lots before the Holy Spirit's falling 
were considered to be the final authority to know and reveal the Lord's will. Now, I think what is really interesting is this one. Exodus 28.30 and Deuteronomy 33.8. Let's go to those two. I want you to see now, the, the lots are also called in the Old Testament the uh, Thummim and the Urim. U-R-I-M and T-H-U-M-M-I-M. Thummim and... Thank you, Margaret. Woohoo! Margaret goes, oh, that's on the, you know, the, the, the breastplate, right? Yeah. Okay, go into Exodus 28.30 and Deuteronomy 33.8. I want you to see how God views the casting of lots. What, what does he call these things, basically? What does he think of them? Wow. It, it, so it's a judgment that's made, right? And what's very interesting to me, it's, it's again, just as Margaret says, it's in the breastplate of who? Of Aaron, the high priest, when he goes where? Before the Lord. Would you consider this a holy article? Would you think that God considers it? Who designated the breastplate? God did. And he said, put the Urim and the Thummim, put the casting of lots in the breastplate. And you wear it before the Lord. Now, this is really kind of cool. Visually, if you think about this, if you and I, in our prayer time, we put on our breastplate of the lots that can be cast for decision-making, and we go before the Lord and said, I'm wearing my breastplate with the judgment before you, Lord. And, I, and what am I doing when I enter into the presence of the Lord? I'm bringing with me, what did he say about Israel? The carry with you. Yeah, so he's carrying the judgment of the sons of Israel. So when you and I go into the presence of the Lord in prayer, I'm bringing this to current day for us. Um, when we enter into the presence of the Lord, we go in there with a bowed knee and a humble spirit, right? Anticipating that God, through the power of prayer, will, will give us guidance to make a decision, Right? Why do we no longer need these two Urim and Thummim when we go in? What now discloses truth to us? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So uh, Deuteronomy 33.8, I don't know. Hold on, we'll look it up for us. You guys will keep me on task. 33.8. Okay, so you'd have to go back and read the whole story on that. But, it's, but the Urim and the Thummim are given to your godly man, to the one who has proven himself, okay? So this would be like the high priest or a priest who is considered respected because of his respect for the Lord and his ability then to go to the Lord with things that are significant and important and come with, back with godly decisions for the people. So it's, it, it is considered a holy object. It's in the breastplate of the high priest. It was used to settle difficult matters. We're still in the Old Testament here, guys. So what do you think is going on here when they cast the lots? Are they going before the Lord with a difficult matter? Yes. And so then when they cast the lot, what do you think the decision is? Is it good or is it of their own making? It's good. It's, good. it's absolute. I t tell you what, for me, this put it to bed. 
I used to say, oh, I'm not sure. It could be, it could be that it was someone else, and maybe it wasn't Matthias. Maybe they just chose on their own. Well, now that I've studied it, what do I see? Absolutely not. And by the way, I've got probably 50 cross-references to the use of the Urim and the Thummim in very significant and profound ways. And in every one of them, God both honored them and or directed them to do it. So this was an Old Testament practice. It's how they knew the will of God. Because for us, we know the will of God how? The, whole, the Holy Spirit within us, which does this revealing, and through the Scripture. But they casted lots because what did they not have? No Holy Spirit to give them that kind of wisdom. Uh huh. Yes, they do. There, there were times when it was misused and done inappropriately. That, so, yes, and they cast the lots at the thing. Yes, it definitely was a practice that was used in the day. But there was a significant difference between the Holy One of God who did it in in prayer to God, asking God for his will, when it was done appropriate, anything like that, any kind of, it's like taking the Lord's Supper, it can be done, you know, uh, what does Corinthians say? Don't do it with, um, there's a word that they use, um, carelessly, basically, without thought, right? You can, so you can misappropriate or misuse any ordinance of God. This, I think, is actually, not, I wouldn't call it an ordinance, but it was definitely sanctioned by God and actually determined by God. He said, take these and put them in the breastplate. Your priest is to use them in these times. So here, here are some things. The cross-referencing for this is it, they, this casting of lots was used in the ministry of the high priest, and there's lots of references, uh, to ap uh, apportion the lands. When, the, when they came on the land and they were supposed to decide who got what land, they would go before the Lord with these and they would cast lots and then they would determine who did it. That wasn't just arbitrary. That was trusting that God was going to show them a, a truthful thing. Now, what had they done, though, to prepare for the ca casting of lots? How, who was put before the group to, for the lot to be cast for? Those who did what? Those who qualified, right? So they had on their human part done everything they could. Number one, they were in prayer. Number two, they desired to know the will of God. Number three, they did everything they could on their part to pick ones that qualified. And when they had done all they could do, they went back to prayer and said, Now, Lord, you show us which one. And they cast the lot. Isn't that exciting? I love it. I am so happy with this, and I am so, I am so solid now on Matthias is the 12th. Great time. Thank you, Lois. All right. Um, the others are, they also selected individuals for all kinds of things like who was going to go to war, which family, had, even Jonathan, they had a lot cast for Jonathan to decide who had, among Israel had sinned, and it turns out it was Jonathan, right? Um, they also did it to assign priestly duties and to, and to settle disputes. It just goes, the list is endless on verses on that. So if you want to do a, a study on that, it would be fun. Yes, 